We are in our series called Discovering the Mission of God. We're in the last section, which is on discipleship. And we're going to be looking through the end of November on how do we as individual Christians become more like Jesus Christ. And I raised the question last week. Okay, we're baptized. We come up out of the water. We're saved. What happens then? I mean, now what? And, and I'm not sure in the past that those of us who have preached and taught have been real clear as to what God wants to do in our individual lives. You turn over to 2 Corinthians, and I laid this out last week, and we all are being transformed into His image. One of the things that God wants to do is restore us into the image of God. That's how we were created, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Sin corrupts that image. Jesus came to restore that image. And of course, notice this with an increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the primary means for doing what we call sanctification. Later in 2 Corinthians, though, Paul brings up the fact that Satan is not setting by letting us do this without opposition. And so Paul would say, and though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Our weapons we fight with are, you know, they're not guns, they're not bullets, they're not tanks, they're not airplanes. We're in a spiritual war. And it's a spiritual world war that is fought right up here primarily, in my mind, in your mind, in the minds of people. Notice in the yellow here, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And so those of us who are Christians are constantly trying to say to the world, listen, God, there is a God, He has acted in the world through His Son Jesus, and we need to submit to that. We need to become followers of God through Jesus Christ. And so our goal is to take every thought captive and to make it obedient to Christ. And I don't know about you, but if we just paused right here, that's hard. That's incredibly hard. I mean, I don't know how many times a day my thoughts go the wrong direction. I mean, you know, whether it's driving in the car, whether it's watching television, whether it's just out working in the yard, next thing you know, your thoughts have gone the wrong direction. And here's Paul saying the goal is to take every thought captive. Now, are we going to do this side of eternity? No. But that's the goal we aim for and that we'll accomplish eventually in the resurrection. And so Paul would urge us to put on the whole armor of God. We're in a war, and we need to be dressed and, and prepared and armed because our struggle's not against flesh and blood, but it's against spiritual powers. If you'll notice up there, it's against the rulers. Not rulers here. It's not against the president or the vice president or Congress or, or the Supreme Court or rulers in other countries. Now, does Satan work through some of those? Of course he does. But our battle is against the rulers in heavenly places, authorities in the spiritual realm. Notice there, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. There's a war literally taking place all around us. We're engaged in that war, whether we realize it or not, and we may easily become casualties of it if we don't prepare ourselves for it. And so last week I mentioned three enemies of Christians, what I call the axis of evil, going back to a term that was used during World War II. Number one, we fight against what we call the devil, the, the Satan, the accuser. All of those three words mean the exact same thing. 
There is a spiritual force that's out there trying to bring us down, and he has spiritual forces that are in conjunction with him. And then we fight against the flesh. Les Chapman fights against that part of him that sin has corrupted. And, and I'm constantly aware of it. You're constantly aware of it. I mean, how many times do we find ourselves in a battle internally, in our minds, in our hearts, as, as one part of us is saying, do it, do it, do it, and the other side is saying, don't, because that's not what a follower of Jesus would do. And sometimes we follow the better side, and sometimes we don't. And then we're fighting the world. Satan is doing his very best to prevent the kingdoms of this world from becoming the kingdom of God. He's going to fail. book of Revelation is very clear about that. But boy, he is so angry because he's been cast down, and he wants to take as many casualties with him as he can. And so notice where the accuser attacks. He's going to attack three primary uh, areas. Number one, he's going to attack us individually. Every day we get up and we find ourselves in the battle. Begins first thing in the morning. I mean, I don't know what your first thoughts are in the morning when you get up. I, I would like to tell you mine's always good. I make a very unfortunate mistake most mornings. I want to be informed what's going on in the world. And so what I do first thing when I get up is I grab my phone and I begin to go through the headlines of the news. But what I discover is it takes me only about a minute or two to be absolutely depressed. I mean, I'm sitting there looking at what's happening around the world and I, I just kind of like want to throw my hands up and say, is there any use? I mean, the corruption, the evil, the wickedness, just the number of mass killings every day. Now, you think, wow, it didn't used to be that way. I, I suspect it was. I suspect we just didn't have the means to discover that, right? We used to have to wait until the evening news and Walter Cronkite to find out what's going on in the world. Now we've got the whole world literally at our fingertips. And so the individual Christian is constantly being assaulted. Number two is the Christian home. And, and the home is under attack. I mean, Satan's coming through our televisions. He's coming through the Internet. He's coming through our friends we have in the culture. He's coming through, oftentimes, the educational system. I mean, Satan's using every tool that we can use for righteousness. He's using it for evil. And he's trying to undermine the foundation of the home itself. And can we admit that he's done a good job? I mean, we have watched the deterioration of the home in the last 50 years in ways that I would have never imagined. And so he's attacking the home. And then number three, he attacks the church. He comes after us right in here. I mean, he wants to do anything and everything to make us look bad. I mean, don't, don't you know Satan loves it when there's a headline that talks about a preacher or a youth minister or an elder or a deacon or just an average Christian, but boy, he goes to church here. Can you believe it? And Satan rejoices. What we want to do today is to pause and to talk about the Christian family and how Satan is attacking it, but more importantly, what we can do to, to strengthen the home. And, and here's what we want to be here at Hendersonville. We want to become a church that equips and encourages families to build faith at home, to, so, to strengthen that solid foundation that is going to both support the church and support the nation 
uh, at the same time. And I'm excited because we've got a special announcement today. And so uh, let's see who's coming up here. Here we come. And uh, one of our elders is going to come up and share with us some exciting news. My name's Nathan White. I serve as one of the elders here at Hendersonville. And as elders, we pray for a church that enables the building of faith in the home. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, it speaks of the faith that we live in every moment, and it specifically mentions the family in the home. And as Christians, we're all invested in that goal ourselves. So to acknowledge the work that has been going on here already and to encourage and plainly state a stronger vision for family discipleship, the elders are changing John Micah Richardson's title to Family Discipleship Minister. He and Stan Wilson, our Minister of Christian Formation, have been working for years to encourage and enable discipleship through events they plan, resources they provide, and teaching. Stan will continue to serve in the roles of teaching and education and will also assume now the role of overseeing our small groups, further defining his very valuable role that he fills here at church. In addition to that, John's role is more clearly defined and focuses on family discipleship. Specifically, he'll be partnering with our student ministry led by William Murphy and Haley Parrott and our children's ministry led by Megan Lawson. We're blessed to have someone like Stan to fill this role with his enthusiasm, his excitement, his knowledge and experience to have a seat at the table for our families as we discuss and plan for the future. Clyde Head is another one of our elders that will come up at the end of service and pray for these exciting changes and the ministries involved. So now I would like to turn it back over to Les and John to continue these discipleship discussions. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, I want to ask John Mike to come up, and we're going to pull up a couple of chairs because we want to talk just a few minutes about this particular uh, transition. And uh, I, I hope that we can get you excited because I am super excited for, for multiple reasons. Uh, I have known John... Uh, probably with the exception of Jennifer, longer than anybody in here. Oh, is your mom over here? She is! Hey! Sorry, bro. Wow! Yeah! Almost as long as your mom. Uh, let, let me tell but, you. But not. not. Yeah, but not. You're exactly right. Uh, I first got to know John in the fall of 1998. So it's been almost a quarter of a century. So half your fair, life, fair enough, at least half of your life. And uh, I was teaching as an adjunct teacher at Lipscomb in Bible. And a young guy comes down, sits on the front row in swing. And uh, next thing I know, he's coming up saying, hey, I'm John Micah Richardson. 
and the next thing you know, we're building a relationship. About a year later, Northside's needing a youth minister, and I go to the elders, and I said, listen, I know the perfect guy. There's a student at Lipscomb, he's fixing to graduate, we need to grab him before somebody else does. And so, John, you came in, you interviewed, and before you even graduated, started working with us at Northside, and worked how many years at Northside? Uh, eight, eight, eight years, half, something okay. around there. Something around eight years before leaving, uh, going to Madison, then eventually coming up here to uh, Hendersonville. Now, one of the things that John and I both share in common is that uh, we both began in student ministry. I began as a youth minister way back in the early 80s. And so it's been now 40 years ago, John, that I started as a youth minister. And youth ministry was very young at that time. Madison had kind of launched the first youth minister in the early 70s. And so by the early 80s, other churches were hiring youth ministers. I was one of the first ones to be hired uh, in West Tennessee. In fact, I was the first youth minister at the Covington Church of Christ and the first youth minister at the Northside Church of Christ. And so I kind of broke in those ministries there. And then, as churches began to add student ministers for long, they were adding kids' ministers. Uh, Tony Birmingham, one of the first ones down in Alabama many, many years ago, as churches said, we need to begin earlier than just in the teenage years. And so churches began to really begin to work with with kids and, and with children's ministries. And John, you and I both back then began to realize that, boy, we also needed help with married couples. And uh, I, I need to help. You, <laughs> I did too. Couple, yeah. I did too. And so uh, I began to do some work. Of all things, some of you know David Gregory, uh, Sister Peggy's a member here, uh, David's mother. David came to me some now 30 years ago and said, Les, we got to better do a better job with these couples we're performing their weddings for. And so David and I developed a very extensive premarital counseling, just kind of stitching together. And John, I know you then. Uh, when you were at Northside, said, hey, I want to get more involved in this. You went to Trebekah in yeah, order yeah, yeah. to specialize. Yep. Just mention a little bit about why you did that. So I've always had a passion for families. And uh, my dad, for those of you who, who know me well, have heard me talk about it before my mom's over here. By the way, where's Kevin? I don't know where Kevin went. Kevin's in here somewhere. I don't know where your hubby went. Man, I, with every fiber of my being, I was holding back every, like, talk about an emotional check, Right. I'm, I'm looking over this way, and I'm, I can see my mom. I'm making eye contact with my mom. And then I'm also looking back, making eye contact with my boys, right? And there's a lot happening between the exchanges that are going back and forth. And so as I think about my dad, and I think about just watching Will and uh, Kevin participate together just then, I thought about all the times with my own dad. I wanted to be just like my dad. I wanted to do what my dad did. And my dad preached for 50 years, and as I got older, uh, that desire shifted, uh, as I got to be 18 and 17, 18, and watched how that all began to play out, uh, God had different plans, obviously. But I, I always had a passion for families, I think, because, because of our home, I would say, uh, because of our family, um, but also because of my dad's passion for families. And so part of that trajectory was I, I had this excitement for going to pursue this uh, Master's of Marriage and Family Therapy. And so I'm not a licensed therapist. I didn't, I didn't choose that route. But within that space... My passion for families grew, um, but I also was equipped in new and more um, efficient ways to actually uh, be a part of premarital counseling. And so it became a passion then, but only within the last four or five years has it really begun to... I've always provided it, but as I've gotten older, 
as you pointed out over and over again the last few days, um, or the last month, I don't know, last year, whatever it is, uh, I, the passion has just continued to grow. So a passion for helping and walking with uh, young couples or married couples or husbands or what it may be. So, yeah, I mean, just, in yeah. general, just walking with families in general, yeah. Yeah, D- John, several years ago, sent Christine and, and her fiancé, Alex, at the time, <laughs> and, I, and sent them to me. Yeah. And so I had the privilege of doing their premarital counseling and being there uh, at their wedding. But, but the thing that, that was exciting for me is watching John as he went through uh, the program there at Trevaca. And then, of course, uh, he, he went back to get more Bible training at Lipscomb with his uh, Masters of Divinity. And, and then when I came here, uh, he said, Les, I'm thinking about going back and working on a doctorate. Uh, and, and I was like, fantastic, uh, you know, that's great. And he's not a doctor yet. He hopes to be within about two weeks. And he's going to open up a practice down on this wing. <laughs> no, no. He's already... Helped me with some back pain that, uh, no. Move along. His, his, his doctorate began to really focus in the area of spiritual formation, which I was just thrilled about because I've had an interest in that area as well. We both have a lot of common authors. And so as John began to talk with me about a new role here at Hendersonville, I, I, I've got to tell you, I don't know of anyone better qualified, better trained, and with more experience than, than John Micah has. And so I was just like, fantastic, let's make this happen. As he works with our kids' ministry, our student ministry, as he works with our counseling center. I mean, he and Brian, you and Brian Shepard's done marriage retreats for for a long time, continue to do that. And so we're trying to do everything we can in order to help families. Because we want to become, again, let me remind you, we want to become a church that equips and encourages families to build faith at home. And the reason for that is very simple. Passage found over in Malachi 2, where in the midst of talking about divorce, Malachi said this about God. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard. I mean, I don't know how better to say that. God wants from all of us in our families to produce godly children, godly grandchildren. And so I'm thrilled, John, that you're here. I'm thrilled that you're fixing to take this new role. I'm excited about the people you're going to be working with. And so I'm going to step off the stage, and if you would kind of share where you see this going and why it's important based on Scripture. I think that's the primary thing that I'm going to do right now is simply put some meat on the bones for why, right? And I'm going to review, or I think it'll be a review, uh, of some storyline that we're very familiar with, but I think it will come into full circle as we talk about this particular adventure that we're on. You'll recall that in Deuteronomy 6, it's already been identified a couple of times this morning, or at least um, uh, referred to. There, there was a moment in time when the Israelites were, were on the brink of entering a brand new land. You remember this, right? And if you haven't, go back and check it out. They are entering the promised land. And Moses is speaking to them, saying, you are on the cusp of entering a new place that God's given you. Um, But in this place, you're going to be surrounded by some nations. (laughs) And these nations aren't necessarily going to be in alignment with the Creator. In fact, you are going to experience a wide range of backgrounds socially, 
politically, theologically, or religiously, however you might want to say that. And as a result of that, you are going to experience tensions, social tensions. You're going to experience um, probably suspiciousness. You're going to experience alienation at times. But you are called, people of God, to live out the mission of God in that place. You are called to be a light to the nations. So check out this text up here, if you will. I think I can do this. I'm going to go through this just not super slowly, but just to kind of come back to this. This is Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 2. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So that you... Your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. Next verse. Hear, Israel. Hear. And be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Critical verse, a couple of verses here, four and five. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And if you pause just for a moment and reflect on just these two verses, you have the expression of the essence of of all of God's person and purposes in just 16 words in the Hebrew text. Everything that God is and everything that God is about and everything that he expects his people to be about are listed in this little space. And he says, I want you to live it out and I want you to model it. In other words, put it into effect in your everyday life. And you may be thinking, how on earth is this even possible? It's what you just talked about. And it's why I think back to this, this trip that Will and Kevin just had. So listen to this next bit of scripture for the how. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Pay really close attention to the language. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk, if you would, along the road, maybe in Will and Kevin's place as you drive back and forth, right, to a baseball trip. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the doorframe of your houses and on your gates. You hear that? This is recipe. So the Covenant recipients are to take these words that Moses is giving them, that God has given them, and they are to inscribe them on the hearts of their children by impressing them. And the image is really interesting, this idea of um, impressing them. So if you don't mind, just in your mind, think for a second. I don't know if anybody in here does this. I know we have people in here that work with their hands and work with um, carpentry and things like that. But the image here is of someone working with a chisel and a hammer and this solid piece of granite. And that person painstakingly takes the time to chisel each letter into this piece of granite, little by little. And the task alone would be daunting. But once it's impressed into the granite, 
It's there to stay. It's been impressed upon them. Moses will go on to say this, but the message itself, not just because it's been impressed, but the message itself is, un, is made unforgettable by the constant repetition. You hear the repetition and the rhythm in this text. Constant repetition. Or language that we're using right now, if you've been with us in the summer, would be intentional rhythms or intentional habits that we have. By the way, this is what discipleship looks like in our homes. Okay, And by the way, there's no one-size-fits-all for this. What you're not going to hear me say in this room right now is there's one way to do it, and you have to all do it this way. But there is a rhythm that we could all adopt. Jennifer and I are a perfect example of a one-size-fits-all. We're a blended family. When I met Jennifer, the girls were three and four. I was 21 years old. We've got a 30-year-old now, a 29-year-old, two grandkids, two grandkids on the way. And I've got two boys right over here. One's going back for his sophomore year in college. Luke's graduating this year. Our family dynamics are different. There's a lot of different family dynamics in this room. You may be a grandparent raising children. You may be a grandparent incredibly involved in the lives of your grandparents. Maybe you're a foster parent. Maybe you are someone who's just in a mentoring position, but you are walking with families in some way, shape, or form. There's no one-size-fits-all. But look at this text. When you sit at home in activity... When you walk along the road, activity. When you think about it, just in these few verses, he says it encompasses all of life and how we do it. And then there's some time mentioned, right? Uh, When you go to bed at night and when you get up. So you think about just the time that families are together. What's it look like then to take advantage of the time that you are together and create intentional rhythms to host conversations? Not lectures, but you heard Kevin say, we're going to drive 18 hours. My guess is he didn't lecture Will to the bone the entire time they were in the car. I know Kevin is probably playful and they had some fun, but he took this amazing um, novel that became a movie and turned this conversation into a spiritual moment, right? So what's it look like to to create these intentional moments, right? These intentional rhythms in our home that that calls us to fully integrate and fully incorporate God's call into every aspect of our being. That's what, it, that's what it boils down to. It's really about God being the center of your life and my life. And if you just paused for a second and made a list of the things that you have centered your, <clears throat> your life in, there's a number of things that we can get distracted by, right? Number of things. But here's something I want to communicate. My friend Johnny Markham mentioned this on the very first Wednesday he came in this summer on Wednesday nights. Before God can be the center of your children's home, of your children's hearts and lives, it has to be the center of yours and mine. If I expect my kids to walk in the path of Jesus, they might, it might do them well to see me and my wife walking on in this path. So Johnny would say this, we as parents and loved ones have to own our faith first and foremost. He, he would say that it's caught and taught. So there's something about us owning our own faith and living this out. And I would say that if you've known me long enough at all, it boils down to this word that you and I are in the process of constantly becoming. Whether you know it or not, everything that you and I participate in is formational. 
Every conversation you have, every thought that you have, every interaction that you have with someone else, everything that you consume, everything that you listen to, every moment of the day, you are being formed whether you know it or not. And so these authors would say it might do us well to be intentional about what that looks like. And so these words, by the way, that are given to the Israelites are the same thing that Jesus gives to his people and gives to people in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew chapter 6. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. Why? Because <laughs> he knows human beings, right? He knows our human nature. He knows how easily you and I can become distracted in a moment. Just a flash, right? But it's not just that. It's distracted over time. Jesus knows what we're like. He knows that what we seek is important. And he says, seek the kingdom first. He says, because of this, because you and I become that which we love. You and I, put it another way, you and I become that which we worship. Whatever you seek first is what you will become. It will, your, your words will reflect it. Your thoughts will reflect it the whole bit. Um, seek the kingdom first. So he's not the only one who says this, though. Paul will continue some of these conversations, and as he addresses the church in Rome, by the way, the church in Rome, let that settle in your hearts for a little bit regarding a conflicting culture. This is the message. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 12, 1 through 2. It's one of my favorite message texts. He says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, your going to work, and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Then he says this. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. And you'll be changed from the inside out, readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it, unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. But catch that phrase before he gets into that. Don't become so adjusted to your culture without even thinking about it. Paul knows that it's effortless. <laughs> it's, it's effortless. And therefore, if you're not intentional about where you're keeping your attention, it's only a matter of time before it will be altered, right? It's effortless. But here's the thing. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens slowly over time. And by the way, he doesn't just say this to the church in Rome when he's talking to the church in Colossae. He says this. He says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated. Set your minds on things above. So he continues to encourage his Christians in these cultures that, by the way, as Leslie just said, it's nothing new. I don't know that there's ever been a time when the culture of the world that you and I live in fully embraces who Jesus is and his ways. From Moses and the Israelites going into a new land to Paul addressing uh, Christians all over the place to Peter as he addresses the churches in Asia Minor to encourage them, he says, guess what? You are living in a place in Asia Minor where you're going to have a lot of different backgrounds, socially, politically, religiously. And you're going to experience tensions, social tensions, political tensions, suspicions, and alienation. But what Peter does is he affirms their identity in Jesus Christ. He says, you are, we're going to be singing about it in a few minutes again. You have a living hope, 
because of who Jesus is. Therefore, you are a living hope. So therefore, when you are living in this culture, be that hope, be the light. That's what it means to be, the, be on the mission of God in this culture. Peter says, reflect the new kingdom reality. He reminds them that they have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them and that they have everything that they need and that they have a new reality because of Jesus and that they are in the process of becoming. So listen to this text. 2 Peter 1, 3-8 says this, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Students, this text should be on your palate and on your hearts because you heard about it all summer long through different things that you walk through. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate. You hear that? Participate, partner, tag team in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guess where those things are instilled in our homes. That's where it starts. It also bleeds over into our community. That's why our community of faith is so important. The gathered church is really essential. When we worship together like this on Sunday mornings, I I don't know if you take it for granted. I know that you show up to participate in worship, but it's also formation because you're singing songs. You're singing words that are being absorbed into your body. We're listening to things. We're interacting with each other. Even this time together is formational. So if it sounds familiar, it's because it is. It's the same charge that Moses gave the Israelites as they were moving into a nation that was surrounding them. And so you and I have everything we need right now because of the Holy Spirit, because of Jesus, to navigate this culture in our current context. So my question is simply this. What kind of people are our families becoming? Where is our attention fixed? We're not always going to do it right, by the way. My goodness. I could, if, I, if you're a parent in this room and you've blown it two or three times and you've messed up like crazy with your kids, raise your hand. You raise both my hands. I'd probably stand up and just say, yep, yep. Um, my goodness. Still messing it up from time to time. Okay? Uh, so it's, it's not, we don't always get it right. But where is our attention fixed? What are we seeking first? What are we prioritizing? So you think about it like this. Like I said, families come in all shapes and sizes, all right? Discipleship takes place in our homes, and it takes place in our homes because of these three words that I have in here. We have choices that we make, and those choices become habits, and those habits create the characters that we have. And we have a lot of space and time in our homes to do that. As Leslie said a couple times, we want to become a church that encourages and, how about this, we want to become a church, we want to intentionally become a church that intentionally equips and intentionally encourages families to build faith at home. So part of this role is um, us tag-teaming to partner with you. And whatever that looks like, we're not always going to get it right. Um, But as a team... Our staff wants to figure out what it looks like to partner with families and help navigate this current season of life. So do me a favor. Stand where you are. 
This invitation is twofold. The first invitation part is for me to simply ask you to invite you to be in prayer over this because they're, 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 the Satan, as you mentioned, the devil, the forces of evil that exist, they would rather the Hendersonville church in general not do any good whatsoever. You understand that? They don't want any, he doesn't want, they don't want any church doing good. So I would ask that you be in prayer over this endeavor, over this journey as we continue to journey with families and become more intentional about it. So please, I'm asking, inviting you to be in prayer over just this in general. Be in prayer over us as we're in prayer over you. Also, you may be sitting here for the first time. There's always a good chance that someone in here is thinking, I don't, I don't know where I am with all this. And maybe you're here this morning because you've been listening for a few weeks or maybe this whole year and you just said, you know what, I think I want to plunge into these waters of baptism. I think I want to enter this journey with Jesus and I want to come, I want to become part of something that um, helps equip me to better fulfill this mission of God that I'm on, then we're here for that as too. We're already standing, so I'm not going to pray over it, but just as you are here right now as we're doing this, and as we're working through this Final piece, I'm, I'm inviting you to pray for us, but also if you are in need of anything, and again, maybe if it's part of just putting Jesus on a baptism, come now as we sing.